G'day, mate. Forty here. I mean, bliss is it uh, to be alive in this exciting time. Day one of the vouch nationalism revolution, which is sweeping the Western world. So just just to be alive right now is absolute bliss. But to be young, to be filled with ancestral supplements, uh, beef organs, right? To be out there doing your push-ups and your weights and walking and jogging and biking. I mean, to be vibrant and filled with energy and strength right now at this exciting day one of the vouch nationalism revolution. I mean, it's very heaven. Right, blessed to be alive, but to be filled with, with passion and, and joy and strength right now, it's very heaven. And I had no intention of doing a YouTube show today, but I was reading Stephen Turner's 2013 great book, The, the Politics of Expertise, and he mentions in it a 1974 paper by Ronald Coase. So Ronald Coase is an ink was an English economist born in 1910. So he died in 2013. He died at 102. He published about five highly influential papers in his lifetime, two of particular import, and won a Nobel Prize basically on the basis of two academic papers. So many academics publish 100 papers in a lifetime, 200 papers. And uh, one economist was telling this to Ronald. And he said, I, I published 200 papers. You've only published three. And Ronald Coase responded, well, mine are different because many academics, they just tweak a little here, tweak a little there. Take an essay they publish here, combine it with other essays they publish there and turn it into a book. But Ronald Coase, everything he, he did was singular and important and changed the way people think. And so I was reading this essay of his that came out in 1974. So he would have been 64 years of age at the time. The market for goods and the market for ideas. So why is it conventional wisdom that we need government regulation with regard to the market for goods, but government regulation with regard to the market for ideas, that's bad. Well, that used to be the way intellectuals thought until when? When did it cease to be the default position for intellectuals that the free marketplace for ideas was, was definitely the way to go. And I think it was the rise of the internet. I think when intellectuals found that they were getting critiqued by people who they regarded as so far below them and pesky critiques and personal critiques and unpleasant critiques, challenging critiques, when they were on the receiving end of the criticism, that's when they decided, well, we need much more government censorship. We just can't allow the the free market of ideas to be extended to just any person. But until till probably about year 2000 or so, it was the overwhelming position of intellectuals that you need a free market in ideas, but you need very heavy government regulation in the marketplace for goods. So why did intellectuals hold for so many decades that we need heavy government regulation in the marketplace for goods? But government regulation is unnecessary in the market for ideas. And I define an intellectual as somebody who makes his living from ideas. And in almost all cases, someone who makes his, his living from ideas, he has to be subsidized. Right? There are very few people who can make a, a living 
with their ideas without substantial subsidies, like only one intellectual in a thousand. And the most common way for people to be subsidized in the intellectual realm is to be a university professor. So if you're a university professor, you're funded by a think tank or even it's National Review University. All right. Uh, magazines of thought like National Review or the New Republic, they would not exist without heavy subsidies. The market cannot support free market intellectual magazines. And that's the way it is. You want to be an intellectual in almost all cases, you have to be subsidized. And so when you're subsidized, of course, then, then you have to pay attention to the person who's subsidizing you or the entity and, and give them what they want. But uh, that's how I define intellectual, someone who makes a living from his idea. So am I an intellectual? And the answer is no, I am not because I do not make my living from my ideas. But I get to play an intellectual on YouTube for a couple of hours a day. Okay, so here's the general view that is the focus of this Ronald Coase essay. So in the marketplace for goods, government regulation is desirable, but in the marketplace for ideas, government regulation is undesirable and should be strictly limited. So in the market for goods, the government is competent to regulate and is properly motivated because consumers lack the ability to make the appropriate choices. So we need to nudge people away from drinking so much soda, for example. We need to nudge them into eating healthier foods. foods. So producers of goods often exercise monopolistic power. And so without any form of government intervention, goes the conventional wisdom, uh, producers of goods would not act in a way that promotes the public interest. But in the marketplace for ideas, that position is very different. And I was struck while reading this 1974 essays how much times have changed because intellectuals no longer have this default support for a free market of ideas. But it used to be intellectuals thought that the government, if it attempted to regulate the free market of ideas, it would be inefficient and that its motives would be bad that even if it were successful in achieving what it wanted to accomplish, the results would be undesirable. But consumers, on the other hand, if left free, right, they will not exercise proper discretion. So intellectuals regarded themselves as special and beyond government intervention. Right? They were too special, too precious. Right? Producers of goods, right, they are so unscrupulous that their behavior in, in the marketplace cannot be trusted to accord with the public interest. But when it comes to the press, right, whether you're the New York Times or the New Republic or the Chicago Tribune or, or CBS, right, when it came to the press, the press said, we don't need any government regulation. First Amendment, guys, government shall not regulate the press. So politicians in their utterances are beyond reproach. We cannot censor what politicians say. That used to be the default position of intellectuals. Now, of course, there's been the default position of intellectuals is that Donald Trump should not be allowed to speak freely, that Donald Trump should not have a Twitter account. Donald Trump should not be allowed to live stream on, on YouTube or anything like that. So it's kind of a weird feature of this attitude that commercial advertising, which is merely an expression of opinion, and you would think this is protected by the First Amendment, but for intellectuals, it's long been considered to be part of the marketplace for goods, not for ideas. 
So government action is desirable to regulate and suppress the expression of opinions by business, the expression of opinions in advertising. But if those opinions were delivered in the form of a book or an article, these opinions would be completely beyond the reach of government regulation. So it's so quaint to think back in 1974 when it, the widespread attitude was that we should have a free market of ideas. So this is Ronald Coase here speaking at age 99 on markets, firms, and property Please. rights. I get very tired and I'm often feeling unwell. The organizers of this conference decided that they would make a recording which could be played at the conference, and this is what I'm going to do. The problem I had, of course, was that they didn't tell me what I should talk about, and I had to decide what my subject should be. I finally decided that... Okay, so the guy's 99 years of age at this point, and still still going pretty strong. Ronald Coase, just... What a towering intellect, a man of such tremendous accomplishment. But he did just spread his wisdom willy-nilly over YouTube live streams. He husbanded his resources, and he only deployed them in just a handful of papers that would forever change intellectual life. Good old Ronald Coase there, at age 99, still delivering lectures. But uh, not a career where he was just willy-nilly spilling his intellectual essence all over the dusty ground. All right. So why do we need the government in the marketplace for goods and not in the marketplace for ideas? So the Western world has long accepted this distinction until the last 20 years and the policy recommendations that go with it. So there was a powerful article around 1973 by Aaron, De Aaron Director. And he quotes a strong statement by Justice William O. Douglas in the Supreme Court opinion. The Justice O. Douglas said, Free speech, free press, free exercise of religion are placed separate and apart. They are above and beyond the political, the police power. They are not subject to regulation in the manner of factories, slums, apartment houses, production of oil, and the like. Now, there's no inherent intrinsic reason why this should be so. I've been going through Hobbes' 1651 work, Leviathan, where he, he says that government needs to regulate publication and public discussion of ideas because when people take on new ideas, that changes how they behave. So Aaron Director remarks about this attachment to free speech, that it is the only area where laissez-faire, meaning free market, is still respectable. Now, a laissez-faire attitude towards free speech today is no longer respectable, but it was still back in 1974. Now, this may be due to the belief in a free market in ideas doesn't have the same roots as belief in the value of free trade. So Aaron Director said, the free market as a desirable method of organizing the intellectual life of the community was urged long before it was advocated as a desirable method of organizing its economic life. So the advantage a free exchange of ideas was recognized before that of the voluntary exchange of goods and services in competitive markets. So America has long had this, held this peculiar status for the free market of ideas. It's been part of our commitment to democracy. Now, 
is a free market of ideas necessary to the maintenance of democratic institutions. So a Carl Schmitt and a Thomas Hobbes would say no, but the dominant view of the liberal, meaning the classically liberal intellectuals like John Locke and, and the, the French thinkers like uh, Voltaire would say yes. Now, intellectuals have tended to exalt the market, free marketplace for ideas and to depreciate the free marketplace for goods. So why? So according to Aaron Director, the bulk of mankind will, for the foreseeable future, have to devote a considerable fraction of their active lives to economic activity. So for these people, freedom of choice as owners of resources in choosing within available and continually changing opportunities, areas of employment, investment, and consumption, to most people, all right, to 99% of people, free choice in their economic lives is as important as freedom of discussion and participation in government. So for most people, most of the time, in most countries, really, all peop virtually all people in all countries, the provision of food, clothing, and shelter is a good deal more important than the provision of the right ideas, even if we know what the right ideas are. So why do we get such a difference in view among intellectuals about the role of government in these two markets? It's an extraordinary difference, and it demands an explanation. The title given to the conference gave me all the information I needed. The conference is on markets, firms, and property rights, and that covers everything I would want to say. Let me start with talking about markets. One of the things that people don't understand is that markets are creations. They are not something which we can find. A market has to be created. In the, the Journal of Law and Economics, one of the early issues, I published an article uh, on the plywood contract to be shown by the uh, Chicago Board of Trade. It was a very complicated set of negotiations that led to the emergency. So this guy was at the University of Chicago along with uh, Milton Friedman. All right, so why is it that those who press most strongly for government regulation of the marketplace have traditionally been the most adamant about our need for freedom of expression in the marketplace of ideas. Agents of the contract, and then having tried it, it failed. This okay, that's Ronald Curse there. All right. So why this paradox? And what's the explanation? So Aaron Director, he has a gentle explanation. He says a suplex explanation for the preference for free speech among intellectuals runs in terms of their interests. Everyone tends to magnify the importance of his own occupation and to minimize that of his neighbor. So for my father, the theologian, theology was the most important study. I spent much of my life in journalism. To me, journalism was the most important thing that you could do. So intellectuals are supposed to be engaged in the pursuit of truth, while others are merely engaged in earning a living. So one follows a profession, usually a learned one, while the other follows a trade or a business. All right, so the market for ideas is the market in which the intellectual conducts his trade. So intellectuals love a free market here because it corresponds with their self-interest and self-esteem. Who was it who said that in areas where people know something, have considerable knowledge, they tend to be quite conservative? They tend to look out very much for their own interests. You notice in every profession, it's always trying to expand its status and its, its power and its earning opportunities. So psychiatrists are always looking to expand opportunities for earning more money, having more power, and having more status. So self-esteem leads intellectuals 
to magnify the importance of their own market, the marketplace of ideas. Now, that others should be regulated just seems natural because intellectuals regard themselves as the ones who should be doing the regulating of other people, right? So much of the world can be explained simply by understanding that people are continually seeking to increase their own sense of importance. Why do people go out and commit mass murder? Because they want to feel more important. Now, self-interest combines with self-esteem to ensure that while others are regulated, regulation should not apply to intellectuals. And so that's how intellectuals have long lived with these two contradictory views about the role of government in these two markets. So the marketplace for ideas is sacred, and this perspective is supported if we examine the actions of the press. So the press is the most stalwart defender of the doctrine of freedom of press. But they're not really so sold on freedom of speech for other people, as we see the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, the other mainstream media increasingly supporting censoring the internet and censoring my ability to speak freely and your ability to speak freely. So the press wants to speak freely, but they don't want you to speak freely. Right? So the press are consistent in only one respect. They're always consistent with the self-interest of themselves, the press. So consider their argument that the press should not be forced to reveal the sources of its published material. This is termed a defense of the public's right to know. So the public has no right to know the source of material published by the press. Now, to want to know the source of a story is not idle curiosity. It's very difficult to know how much credence to give to information or to check on its accuracy if one is ignorant of the source. The academic tradition discloses to the greatest extent possible the sources on which one relies and thus exposes the sources to the scrutiny of one's colleagues. Right? This, this is the, the sound and essential element in the search for truth. But this consideration does not deter the press from revealing confidences when it is in their interest to do so. Right? So life as we know it would be impossible if we could not express things in confidence. Right? In the real world, if people knew everything that we said, life would, would become impossible. And this is true for people in business, people in government, people in private life. All right, confidentiality is necessary for frankness. But the press has no hesitation revealing these confidences when it is in their interest to do so. And the press is at the same time happy to impede the flow of information to reveal the sources of the material published in cases which the transmission of the information involved a breach of trust or the stealing of documents. Right? So the press wants one standard for themselves, completely different standard for everybody else. Right? The press has no problem accepting stolen documents. They have no problem accepting information coming from people with a grudge. They have no problem breaching confidentiality and just general decency. Right? So from, from the news media's perspective, the main thing wrong with the Watergate affair is that it was not organized by the New York Times. The New York Times wanted to engage in the behavior that became known as Watergate, then they'd be doing it in the interest of the people. But if anyone else acts that way, then it's a big scandal. Also, consider the attitude of the press to government regulation of broadcasting. So broadcasting has become an important source of news and information. It falls within the purview of the First Amendment. 
yet the program content of broadcasting stations is subject to government regulation. Now, you'd think that the press devoted to the strict enforcement of the First Amendment would have been constantly attacking this abridgment of the right of free speech and free expression, but in fact, they have not. So in the 45 years which passed since the formation of the Federal Radio Commission, now called the Federal Communications Commission, and this essay in 1974, there are very few doubts about the policy expressed by the press. Right? The press, which is so anxious to remain free from government regulation itself, has never exerted itself to secure a similar freedom for broadcasters. In fact, the press has tended to act in a hostile way towards the freedom of broadcasters. So the press colluded to suppress the ability of the British Broadcasting Corporation to gather news independently and then to present news before 7 p.m., right? No news could be broadcast before 7 p.m. on the BBC because that would adversely affect the sale of newspapers. Now, gradually over the years, these restrictions were reduced, but the press did everything they could in Britain to reduce the ability of the BBC to gather and broadcast news. It was only after the outbreak of World War II that the BBC broadcast a regular news bulletin before 6 p.m. So the press are not just disinterested pursuers of the truth. They also want money, and they also want power and prestige, and they want to restrict the ability of other groups to get access to money, power, and prestige that they believe belongs primarily to them. Now, the traditional attitude towards free speech comes largely from John Milton. We looked, we looked last time in at St. Peter's declamatory speech During the English in, Civil War. in Lycidas, and we spent a lot of time on it. And we looked at its relation to the new career that John Milton uh, ended up assuming in the late, in, in the late 1630s, the, this new career as a polemical uh, writer of political prose. And, and Milton becomes increasingly in this period, and this is the period of the, of the, uh, of the English Revolution. It's what is the English Revolution, you ask? Uh, well, that's a good question, and there's still um, innumerable, uh, often competing answers to that question. But it seems to be more or less, this is one way of framing, framing an answer, it seems more or less to be a Puritan revolution. Uh, Middle-class Puritans, like John Milton, um, find themselves upholding the authority of Parliament over the authority of King Charles and over the authority of the official Church of England. Um, that's uh, the, the roughest possible sketch of what the English Revolution is. Um, but we find ourselves in today's reading, Areopagitica, in the middle of the English Revolution, sometimes called the Puritan Revolution. It's in this period that Milton increasingly begins to adopt or assume St. Peter's a confident and denunciatory rhetoric. Um, he adopts it as his own. Okay, back to this uh, great 1974 essay by Ronald Peirce. So there's uh, probably not been a more high-minded scholar than John Milton. So as his Aeropagetica stood for the liberty of unlicensed printing, this work is the most celebrated defense of the doctrine of the freedom of the press ever written. So it was written in 1644. And he asserts the primacy of the marketplace for ideas says, give me the liberty to know, to utter, and to argue freely according to conscience above all liberties. So the point of this pamphlet was to argue against having to have a license to print 
and to publish. So the current intellectual climate is that essentially people should be licensed to be able to post opinions online, that people should be restricted from posting their opinions online. So according to John Milton, marketplace of ideas is different from the marketplace for goods. It should not be treated in the same way. Truth and understanding are not such wares as to be monopolized and traded in by tickets and statutes and standards. You must not think to make a staple commodity of all the knowledge in the land to mark and license it like our cloth and our wool. So the licensing of printed material is an affront to learned men and to learning. So on the face of it, it seems like John Milton would not be a big fan of increasing censorship on social media. So according to Milton, when a man writes to the world, he sums up all his reason and all his deliberation to assist him. When I give you my opinions, I'm giving you from what I think is the best in me, what I think are the best sources of information and what are the primary moral values that I stand for. So when I stand and deliver, I'm giving you the best of my reason, the best of my deliberation. I search, I meditate, I mediate, I'm industrious, I consult, I confer with friends. Because what a man has done, he takes himself to be informed in what he writes. This is John Milton. So if in this, the most consummate act of his fidelity. right? No industry, no form of proof of his ability can bring him to that state of maturity is not to be still mistrusted and suspected unless he can carry his considerable, considerate diligence, all his midnight watchings, to the hasty view of an unleasured licenser, perhaps much his younger, perhaps far his inferior in judgment, perhaps one who never knew the labor of book writing. And if he be not repulsed or slighted, must appear in print like a puny with his guardian and his senses hand on the back of his title to be his bail and surety, that he is no idiot or seducer, cannot be but a dishonor and derogation to the author, to the books, the privilege and dignity of learning. So that's what I do here, all right? I, I show up here. This is my most consummate act of my fidelity, of my industry, right? No form of proof of my abilities is going to stand in my stead today. I still have to bring my best stuff. So licensing, before you can print, before you can share your views, is an affront to the people. Right? Nor is it to the common people less than a reproach, for if we be so jealous over them as that we dare not trust them with an English pamphlet, what do we but censure them for a giddy, vicious, and ungrounded people in such a sick and weak state of faith and discretion as to be able to take nothing down but through the pipe of a licenser? So this is a completely different attitude than we have today among intellectuals. The intellectuals believe the common people need to be guarded over that they cannot be trusted with just anyone's opinion, that we have to censor on their behalf because they are so giddy and vicious and ungrounded, that they are so sick and so weak, they so lack in discretion, right, that we have to intervene on their behalf. So, quoting to John Milton, in the marketplace for ideas, the right choices are made, that truth and falsehood grapple, whoever knew truth put to the worst in a free and open encounter. This used to be the dominant approach among intellectuals. So why did it change and when did it change? It seemed to me it started changing considerably after about year 2000 when the internet really took off, when blogging really took off. So I remember when I was writing about the porn industry and every month it seemed like there was someone new who was coming down with HIV in 1997, 1998, the porn industry revolted like, who is this outsider 
coming with information. People should only get their information from official sources like Adult Video News and the Porn Industries trade group, the Free Speech Coalition. So someone who licenses opinions and printing should be studious, learned, and judicious, but this is not what we are likely to get. We may easily foresee what kind of licenses we are to expect, either ignorant, imperious, and remiss, or basically pecuniary, just in it for money. So the licenses of opinion are more likely to suppress truth than falsehood. If it come to prohibiting, there is aught more likely to be prohibited than truth itself. His first appearance to our eyes, bleared and dimmed with prejudice and custom, is more unsightly and unplausible than many errors. So we evolve to be skeptical when other people are trying to manipulate us. And so when other people bring us ideas, our natural evolutionarily developed impulses are to be highly skeptical. So Milton tells us that the licensing scheme against which he was writing came about as a result of industry pressure. Right, There were those who wanted to restrict the ability to publish and, and keep, keep business just for themselves. Vouch nationalism, media licenses. 40 is making ways, changing the minds of millions, from reporting on porn to reporting on national socialism. Oh, brother, I have a feeling this is going to be a great lecture. Blessings. Right. I mean, how exciting is this? We are living in day one of Vouch Nationalism. I am the proud owner of VouchNationalism.com. I mean, this website is the, is the fulcrum upon which I will shift the entire trajectory of the Western world. So in the formation of John Milton's views, self-interest played a part. He wanted freedom of expression. But his arguments also embody a good deal of intellectual pride, right? This writer is a learned man. He's diligent and trustworthy. The, the licensor, meaning the, the, the YouTube censor, very likely to be ignorant, incompetent, and basely motivated, perhaps younger and inferior in judgment. So I just got a notice from Twitch. Twitch suspended my account. Now, why would Twitch suspend my account when no other social media has suspended my account. Well, great news, guys. Twitch is, is committed to keeping our community safe for everyone. And as a part of that, we require all users to ensure that anything shared on their account abides by Twitch's terms of service and community guidelines. So I haven't got this on any other account. And you, you know how milk toast I've been. So based on a review of your activity or content, and my content only stays up on Twitch for 72 hours, we have issued a community guideline strike on your account. Due to the severe nature of this violation, or the fact that you've incurred more, no, this is my first violation, your access to Twitch is indefinitely restricted. Reason, extremely hateful conduct. All right, so everything that I've put on YouTube, you can find at least the audio version, the MP3 version on SoundCloud, uh, not to mention many videos on uh, Rumble and BitChute and, and Odyssey. But uh, did you realize that my last few streams have been filled with extreme hateful conduct? So were these my streams talking about the politics of expertise? Were these my streams uh, analyzing the rise of Reform Judaism in 19th century Germany and the Orthodox response? Were these my streams on the TV show Under the Banner of Heaven? Focusing your conduct on promoting, encouraging, or facilitating the discrimination or denigration of others based on their protective characteristics. So when did I do this in the past week or the past year or the past five years? 
Examples of violative conduct include, but are not limited to, diverting a majority of your stream toward promoting racism or xenophobia. Going on a prolonged rant about how a specific group of people are a danger to society because of their religion. Dissipating in or organizing a hate group's malicious activities. Your suspension is indefinite. Man, John Milton... John Milton would not be, be pleased with, with this kind of attitude. What, what John Milton was writing in the 17th century is just so applicable to the people at, at Twitch, right? We're talking about people who are filled with prejudice, ignorance, fraudsters, right? Uh, the writer and the live streamer in this case is a learned man, diligent and trustworthy, but the Twitch licensor Ignorant, incompetent, basely motivated, inferior in judgment. Right? The common man always chooses truth as against falsehood, says John Milton. Now, Ronald Coe says, I don't believe that this distinction between the market for goods and the market for ideas is valid. There is no fundamental difference between these two markets. In deciding on public policy with regard to that, we need to take into account the same consideration. Same considerations. In all markets, producers have some reasons for being honest and some reasons for being dishonest. Consumers have some information but are never fully informed. They're able to fully digest the information they do have. Regulators commonly wish to do a good job, but they are often incompetent. They're often subject to the influence of special interests. They act like this because, like all of us, they are human beings whose strongest motives are not their highest motives. So Ronald Coase says we should use the same approach for all markets when deciding on public policy. We should employ the same approach towards the market for ideas as we approach toward the marketplace for goods. And he says the case for government intervention in the marketplace of ideas is much stronger than it is in the marketplace for goods. So economists usually call for government intervention, including direct government intervention when the market does not operate properly, when there exist spillover effects or externalities. Now, try to imagine the property rights system that would be required and the transactions that would have to be carried out to assure that anyone who has pushed ideas or proposals for reform that uh, resulted in market failure and externalities, all right? So if you're pushing ideas that uh, make the world a worse place, like generally speaking, feminism, uh, generally speaking, promoting more and more immigration in, into the West, uh, more and more you know, co communism, government intervention in schooling, pushing you know, LGBT, LGBT, indoctrination and grooming of kids uh, these would seem to be externalities situations of this kind usually lead economists to call for extensive government intervention and then what about consumer ignorance this is usually thought to be a justification for government intervention it's hard to believe that the general public is in a better position to evaluate competing views on economic and social policy than to choose between different kinds of food yet there is support for regulation in the one case but not in the other well times have changed haven't they this was published in the American Economic Association Journal in May 1974. Now there's about just as much support for intervention by intellectuals in the marketplace for ideas as there once was in the marketplace for goods. Love bites, love bleeds. It's bringing me to my needs. Ford is leading the info war. Alex Jones passed the torch. Wow, did you tell them that you're Jewish, bro? 1776 was an info war. Thomas Jefferson would have 
sold Deep Earth Iodine from if it was, if it was available. Twitch only wants ethos and gamblers and degenerates. I think maybe it was Ken Brown's love streams. Ford is a danger to society. Come on, man. 40 scores. Super low on the hate index, bros. Okay, so back to this. It's just amazing reading this 1974 essay by Ronald Coase and to think that there was a time when intellectuals were basically united in just a de facto support for free marketplace of ideas. What a dramatic change, and to what do you attribute it? I attribute it to the rise of the internet and the ability of regular people to criticize intellectuals, particularly the rise of Twitter, where anyone could go up against anyone. So... What about the question of preventing fraud, right? We currently hear we need government intervention to prevent fraud in the marketplace. So many newspaper articles and political speeches contain large amounts of fraud. So on the face of it, government action to control this fraud may be considered highly desirable, yet a proposal to do this with the Federal Trade Commission or the Federal Communications Commission would be dismissed out of hand. Well, it would have been dismissed out of hand in 1974, not so much in 2022. What, what a sea change in the attitude of intellectuals. The strong support enjoyed by the, friend, the First Amendment should not hide us from the fact that there is a good deal of government intervention in the marketplace for ideas. So governments have strongly intervened in the broadcasting arena, but there's also education. Right? Government funds education, and it funds particular types of education, which is an intervention in the world of ideas. If you want to speak freely on college campus, then you can't take federal government funds. Not only one major college doesn't take federal government funds. That's Hillside, is it the, uh, the school in Michigan, where it tends to be quite, uh, quite conservative. Come on. What's the one... One college that does not take federal funds, even even Jim Jones. So, come on, there's a, there's a hill. Hill. What is it? Come on, guys. Hillsdale, Hillsdale College, Michigan. Right, list of uh, colleges. So there's a list here actually of eighteen, and they seem to be almost all uh, Christian schools. Let's get a little bit more on John Milton. Does. And he writes a series of treatises in support of, uh, and this is uh, really, really out there, and he alienates a lot of his natural organic base uh, with these actions. But Milton writes a series of treatises in support of the right to divorce, uh, divorce for reasons of incompatibility, and he continues to assist the Puritan left, the progressive movement, in overthrowing the hierarchical structure of the, of the Church of England. The bishops... Uh, also called the prelates, those church officials essentially appointed by Archbishop William Laud, whom we looked at last time, were replaced in the early 1640s by means of the success of the Puritan revolutionaries, were replaced by presbyters, ministers who were chosen by individual congregations. And Milton was able to think of this new form of church government as the most reasonable form of church government because it seemed to be the product of, of individual choices. It seemed to be the product of individual decisions made by the rational, church-going English public. Okay, back to this terrific 1974 essay by Ronald Coase. So 
one area that the government intervenes in speech is by subsidizing certain speech in education. So public education usually comes with a left-wing agenda. And any type of education that I've experienced, there's always some new fad blowing through almost every year. So government regulation of education is usually accompanied by government financing and other measures such as compulsory school attendance which increases the demand for the services of intellectuals and therefore increases their status, their power, and their incomes. So self-interest leads to a general support for free market in ideas, but they're quite willing to compromise when it comes to government intervention in education. And there are all sorts of other cases in which groups of practitioners in the marketplace for ideas support government regulation and the restriction of competition. So in Germany, it's illegal to homeschool your kids, right? People generally support regulation when it increases their income, their status, and their power. So a general policy of regulation of speech would have the effect of reducing the demand for the services of intellectuals. So the public is commonly much more interested in the struggle between truth and falsehood than it is in the truth itself. So I usually get suggestions to do shows to attack other live streamers. So I, I was getting comments today. Hey, you know, 40, go after Sticks and Hammer. Sticks and Hammer, he got called out by Vouch for, for, for being shallow and superficial. So Art Bell writes, look. Any shot of you reviewing this blast of Sticks and Hammer being a skimmer more than a reader, a, a careless bulk video maker. So Vouch says Sticks is an untrustworthy, non-peer-reviewed YouTuber who referred to a climate change article he doesn't seem to have read properly. This is two years old, but Sticks is 20,000 subs from Vouch, and it's a great swerve from Vouch nationalism to Vouch. So in his Super Chat show, Sticks has mentioned Vouch and told viewers to skip his videos. Don't trust this guy. But this might mean he knows my dirty tricks, so I need to steer people away. Sticks feels the sting of his gas mask critique Biden video. Bausch noted the overlord, overload technique of ending the video with many new and unproven conclusions. As you said with the Trump protests, Luke, Sticks shoves stuff in there without evidence. So Bausch opens the video with a bash of Sticks denying the truth. Get your determination, Judge Luke. The article versus what Sticks claims about versus what Vouch says it's about. Was Vouch correct about Sticks and Hammer being a lazy skimmer? It's a very catchy title. It would show up in search. Also, Keith Wood said of Sticks' plan to handle Trump's defeat by doing hit piece videos for four years, sounds like a cope, not a strategy. So here's Vouch with the video. Illiterate cringe lord Sticks and Hammer 666 complains about woke climate activism. So people are much less interested in truth than they are interested in the battle between truth and falsehood. So let's get a little here from uh, Vouch. Or Sticks Hexenhammer, I guess. I'm going to be honest with you guys. I don't follow this dude's content that much. Everything I have ever seen of this person um, leads me to believe that they are a desperately cringy, um, incredibly unintelligent uh, loser. Um, you, you remember Razor Fist? Remember how Razor Fist would casually misunderstand and misstate every single thing he said, but he talked fast and he had a leather jacket and a sense of style that was, that, let's be real, was never appropriate, but would have been more appropriate 30 years ago? 
Yeah, yeah, it's like Razor Fist, but like lamer, basically. The I only know two things from this guy. That he complains about cultural Marxism a lot, and that he was a Holocaust denier like six years ago. I don't know if he still does- So this uh, Vouch video came from February 13, 2020. Does Holocaust denial? He's usually shirtless? Well, I'm glad we happened upon this video then. I watched like two Patriot Act videos, my whole fucking- I guess it was like three or four. I was playing Hat in Time. He's also a Nazi. I th I do think... I do think Sticks and Hammer might be too stupid to have a con coherent or consistent set of principles. Because I've seen some stuff that he's done. He went on Red Ice TV. He's he's talked with Richard Spencer. He oh, said oh that he, leans, he wants to lean more into the far right. But, you know, I've also heard him say that he staunchly supports like women's equality and, and gay rights or something. I have no idea. I, I have no idea. Uh, it's possible to be incoherently fascist. That is totally possible. Um... If anyone, there's an excellent video on this. So I think uh, some of Vash's critiques here are valid, uh, could be valid. I, I don't know enough about the topic, but obviously uh, faulting Sticks because he's willing to talk to Red Ice or to talk to Richard Spencer is absurd. And this was the first time I ever heard of Sticks and Hammer, by the way, it was through Destiny. Hold on. Dude, over here on the right, above my camera. I kind of like them. They seem nice. They're giving me the finger, two fingers, actually. Um, but I still like them. I think they're cute. It's him? Okay. I mean, I like the little figure. The little baby sticks. Let's find out. SJW cannibalism is climate change, quote-unquote, movement declared, quote-unquote, too white. All right, everyone. There was a very Woo! cringy and funny article the other day from Vice. Okay, that's redundant. It's a Vice article. Uh, about. I'm going to say this exactly once. How do you have 400,000 subscribers on YouTube and have a microphone like this? Holy shit. Jesus Christ, put a fucking noise dampener on. I guess there was this, you know, person of color, which is kind of a bigoted term when you really think about what it really means, but that's the one that the woke people use now. It's <laughs> we got that woke terminology again. Uh, people of color isn't a racist term in any way, shape, or form. Um, people of color is uh, broadly adopted um, after its use in academia, and it was used in academia mainly to distinguish um, against, like, hegemonic whiteness. Um, the idea being essentially that in Western or white culture, you know, here in America at the very least, um, when it comes to your sort of broader racial predilections, the way you're treated, you are either white or not. That there is a distinction. Okay, so the reason why I, I want to talk about this particular uh, video just a little bit is to emphasize Ronald Coase's point that the public is not that interested in truth public is far more interested in the struggle between truth and falsehood, right? There's a saying, all the world loves a lover. No, it doesn't. What all the world loves is a scrap. The world loves a good fight, right? The world is, is compelled by battles, by the struggle between truth and falsehood, not particularly interested in truth in and of itself. ...between those groups. Whiteness is inherently exclusionary. Blackness is inherently inclusionary. Think about it. Obama was black, but in, actual, in actuality, he was half white. Why is that? Well, that's because, you know, a drop of black blood makes you one of them. But whiteness is something you have to be allowed into. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's a, to distinguish fundamentally between the, like, those broader social blocks. But it's not a racist term, not in any way, shape, or form. I'm going to respond to this in really good faith. It's been a while since I've done that. And I feel like I'm going to catch this guy in, like, 18 stupid things a minute. So did he just say it's been a while since he's responded to someone in good faith? Hilarious. But uh, who left, I guess. The right, remember the, the business for commentary, how you make a living, supposedly with your ideas, is you give a devoted audience what they want to hear. 
if if you're a libertarian, you you keep telling them why libertarians are right. If you're a left winger, you keep telling them why the left is right and the right is wrong. If you're a conservative, you just come every day with why conservatives are right and everyone else is wrong. Now, if you're interested primarily in truth, then you have to admit that sometimes the left is right and the right is wrong. Sometimes the right is right and the left is wrong. Sometimes the centrists are more correct than either. Sometimes the libertarians are right. Sometimes the authoritarian approach is right. Sometimes the elite are right. Sometimes the elite are wrong. Sometimes the common people are right. Sometimes the common people are wrong. There's no group that is gifted by heaven a, a monopoly on truth. Right? There's no group that is almost always righteous, almost always telling the truth, almost always on the side of the angels. Right? Sometimes the left is right. Sometimes the right is right. Sometimes the elites are right. Sometimes the middle class is right. Sometimes the working class is right climate movement insofar as that bullshit exists because it's too white uh, i guess the idea is you know greta thunberg is white and these activists a lot of them they're you know they're white trust funders from like college towns and stuff that's really interesting you know what i love doing before i go over these videos i love looking at the article they're referring to which i read you're welcome and it has nothing to do with what he's talking about leaving because greta thunberg is white so this is true for for most pundits all right, they they use articles and they use news events to to repeat their their greatest hits. All right, successful punditry is like top forty radio. You just play the hits over and over and over again. You just vary it with with circumstance. So one particular story, you come in with this greatest hit, and then the next story, you come in with this greatest hit. And so you'll notice this with virtually every talk radio host. You notice this with Dennis Prager, like Dennis Prager would often seize on a news article and then his, his sound engineer or his producer will point out, well, actually, the article says the very opposite of what you're saying it is because people see the world not as the world is. We see the world as we are. And so we think we can predict what the article is really saying, but we've got the, you know, we've got the truth and we know better. Therefore, we don't have to listen very hard to other people or read very carefully. And because white people do climate change uh, activism, we'll go over it more. Um, I'm sure as uh, as, it, as it becomes prescient. That is true. Uh, that's where that tends to promulgate. And so they decided to leave the movement. I'm thinking to myself how fucking wacky this is. First and foremost, uh, yes, the climate movement again, so called. So I would never choose to watch a, a sticks video or a vouch video. Not anything against them. That they both. You know, far more talented, far more skilled, you know, far more popular, uh, far more professional and, and excellent in their genre than I am. It's just not how I choose to use my time. I prefer to hear academic approaches. I prefer to hear you know, from the, the great courses. I prefer to hear a lecture from some Yale professor. But uh, that you know, little confrontation there between Vouch and Sticks and the Hammer does have, you know, far more compelling entertainment value than me reading aloud from a 1974 Ronald Coase essay in the American Economic Association. But he makes this great point here. The, the public is usually more interested in the struggle between truth and falsehood than it is in the truth itself. You want to get views on YouTube telling the truth. It's not going to bring you views. Struggling between truth and falsehood with internet blood sports debate, that is compelling. It's not true all the world loves a lover, not even a lover of truth. What all the world loves is a scrap, a fight, a competition, a battle, right? 
So when you have demand for the services of writers and speech makers, it largely depends on the existence of controversy, right? You have to have controversy for writers and speech makers and YouTubers and podcasters to have any importance, any prominence, any income, right? Uh, truth standing triumphant and alone. There's no money in that, right? Presenting truth triumphant and alone. There's no status in that. Presenting truth triumphant and alone. There's no power in that. Presenting truth triumphant and alone. You get no following from that. Just presenting the truth triumphant and alone. And you will very likely feel you're just speaking into a void. Uh, take Kenneth Brown. He gets 99% of his hits because he offers some sometimes smart, sharp, and funny commentary on the alt-right. When he's just dealing in the world of metaphysics, his audience disappears, right? There is no audience for truth standing triumphant and alone. There's very little audience. It's very difficult to attract an audience where you present truth triumphant and alone. What people want is truth battling falsehood. So, what kind of policies would be most appropriate? Right? What should government do? Right? Is the government as incompetent as it is generally assumed in the marketplace for ideas? Right? If the government is that incompetent, then we would want government to decrease government intervention in the marketplace for goods. If government is as efficient as it is generally assumed by our ruling elites, in the marketplace for goods, then we would want to increase government regulation in the marketplace for ideas. And that's exactly what's happened. So this inconsistency has gone away. So in 1974, intellectuals wanted a free marketplace of ideas, laissez-faire with regard to ideas, heavy government intervention in goods and services. Now intellectuals want heavy government intervention in both spheres. Now, one can adopt an intermediate position. A government is neither as incompetent as assumed in one market, nor as efficient and virtuous as assumed in the other. So in this case, we ought to reduce the amount of government regulation in the market for goods and increase government intervention in the marketplace for ideas. What a stimulating essay by Ronald Coase from 1974 in the American Economic Association just blew me away. I mean, how much the intellectual climate has changed since 1974 when it was simply taken for granted that the free marketplace for ideas is a good thing. So a few days ago, Stephen Kotkin spoke about Vladimir Putin, Adolf Hitler, Zelensky, the war in Ukraine with Lex Friedemann. So your powerful, precise, rigorous words are uh, standing in a uh, stark contrast, I would say, to my very recent conversation with Oliver Stone. Now, I would love you to elaborate to this agreement you have here with his words and maybe words of people like uh, John Mearsheimer. The idea is that Putin's hand in this invasion of 2022 was forced by the expansion of NATO, the imperialist imperative of the United States and the... the... So now it's going to get interesting because Stephen Kotkin is going to critique John Mearsheimer and Oliver Stone, and then I'm going to critique... Stephen Cockin's critique, right? So now we get to have the battle between truth and falsehood. The NATO forces. Um, you disagree with this point in terms of placing the blame somehow on the invasion on uh, forces larger than the particular two nations involved, but um, more on the geopolitics of the world that's driven by the most powerful military nation in the world, which is the United States. 
Yeah, Lex, so let's imagine that um, a tragedy has happened here in New York and a woman got raped. We know the purpose. Okay, that's, that's a, a great analogy. So it's wrong to rape. But if you dress in a slutty fashion and go into a bad part of town alone and just walk around and smile and chat with every stranger who comes along, you're far more likely to get raped than if you didn't. Now, the rapist is still a bad person. They still committed a crime. And you do not morally deserve to get raped. But the nature of reality is you are far more likely to get raped if you participate in this kind of activity than if you'd gone to a Bible study in a good part of town. So I know women who get into bed naked with guys and are then shocked when those guys rape them. Well, if you don't want to have sex with a guy, don't get into bed naked with him. Now, the guy is, is doing a bad thing by forcing her to have sex. Right? Just because she got naked does not mean that she wants to have sex. So he's still committing a, a moral and a, a very, seems to me, very likely a legal infraction by, by obviously forcing a woman to have sex. But if you don't want to have sex, don't get naked with a guy. And if you don't want to get raped, don't place yourself in positions where you're far more likely to be raped than other places where you're far less likely to be raped. Perpetrator. They go to trial and Oliver Stone gets up and says, you know what? The woman was wearing a short skirt and there was no option. For so it's interesting. Stephen Cocken here is responding to the realist critique of the nature of reality with a moral judgment. And John Mearsheimer is not primarily in the business of making moral judgments on great power politics. He simply lays out, this is the nature of great power politics. When you threaten a great power on their doorstep, they will tend to respond in a vicious fashion. John Mearsheimer doesn't endorse that reality. It would be the equivalent of saying, you get into bed naked with guys. Very frequently, they're going to force you to have sex, even though you don't want to, even though they're committing a moral and a, a moral sin and a legal crime. But for the rapist to rape her, the woman was wearing lipstick or the woman was applying for NATO membership and just had to be raped. There's, I mean, didn't want to rape her, but was compelled because of what she was doing and what she looked like and, and the clothes she was wearing and the alliances that she was under international law signed by Moscow, all the treaties that sovereign countries get to choose whatever alliance they belong to. Uh, treaties that uh, the UN charter signed by Russia, Soviet Union, the 1975 Helsinki agreement signed. right it's just such a bizarre response that because russia signed these various treaties uh, therefore they're morally wrong for dishonoring these treaties okay they're morally wrong that's not the nature of the realist critique the nature of the realist critique is not about the morality of great power politics it's about the reality right there's morality there's reality right often two different spheres sometimes you can bring them together which I try to do at times, such as given the nature of reality, okay, nature of the reality is if a woman gets naked and gets into bed with a guy, she's far more likely to get raped than if she goes to a Bible study at her church and doesn't get naked with any guys that night, right? That's the nature of reality. Given that reality, it would be the moral thing for the woman not to get into bed naked with a guy because she would be you know, tempting him into both a sin and a crime. Also, it would be the moral thing for the guy to stay away from such unstable 
dangerous women who make such terrible choices and who are inviting abuse because it's not going to end well. You're, you're getting into bed with an Amber Heard. And how did that work out for Johnny Depp? Signed by the Soviet Union, the 1990 Charter of Paris for a New Europe, signed by the Soviet Union, the 1997 NATO-Russia Founding Act, signed by the Russian government, the post-Soviet So he's, he's invoking all these international laws as though they mean anything. They don't. International law means very little, right? We're all locked in an iron cage together. And when you're locked in an iron cage, what is the law is not usually the dominating principle it's not usually the principle that uh, determines how people really react. Now, Elliot says the strong critique what they want and the weak tweet about it. Well, tweets are critiques. So it's not that the strong critique what they want, the strong take what they want, and the weak endure what they must. And when it comes to physical strength, generally speaking, uh, men tend to have more physical strength. There are other forms of strength. Women tend to live longer. So men and women tend to have different gifts. All of those documents signed by either the Soviet regime or the Russian regime, which is the legally recognized international inheritor, right, successor of the Soviet state. Or oh, I was just thinking one of my recent videos was about how the Buffalo shooter live streamed his massacre on Twitch. All right, so I think that Twitch probably didn't like it, that I highlighted the role that they played in, in the... Buffalo massacre. So what's easier for Twitch to face up to their own uh, bad behavior? Right? He was live streaming for about 20 minutes or you know, blame someone else for pointing out that uh, Twitch was live streaming the massacre. So we would all much rather point our fingers at someone else. Get back to Stephen Kotkin. All of those agreements are still in force and all of them say that... Oh, all these agreements are still in force. Really? Enforced by whom? Stephen Kotkin believes that these agreements have in and of themselves metaphysical certitude. Right? He sounds like Ken Brown here. Guys, you can't go anywhere until you reach agreement on metaphysical principles. And so Stephen Kotkin takes it for granted that these legal agreements have metaphysical certitude. They have metaphysical power. They have metaphysical force. Well, which battalions are backing up these agreements? Whose armies back up these agreements? Whose armies will enforce these agreements? Whose nuclear weapons will enforce these agreements? Whose tanks will enforce these agreements? And the answer is no one. There are no tanks. There are no armies. There are no nuclear weapons. There are no fighter jets. There are no bombers that will enforce these, these legal agreements. Right? They're pieces of paper. Men sign pieces of paper all the time and these pieces of paper only have force if there is some power that will enforce them but there's no power that will enforce international law international institutions the un the who uh the you know the human rights league in the hague it, it doesn't have any battalions doesn't have any bombs doesn't have any fighter jets doesn't have any tanks doesn't have much power unless people with power decide to enforce these institutions and back them up with battalions and tanks and, and bombs. Okay. So when great powers think it's useful to provide force behind these ins national institutions, then the international institutions have power, such as when the United Nations went to war in 
Korea against North Korea's invasion, right? But that was only because the United States wanted and wanted and was willing to go to war and was able to get uh, the United Nations on board. But this, in and of itself, the UN and these treaties have no meaning, no power. He talks as though these things have implicit, inherent power. They have none. Who? Where's the power? Who? Who enforces it? Right. An agreement between you and me means nothing unless we voluntarily choose to abide by it or there is some powerful force that will enforce the agreement between you and me. But men make assent to things all the time that uh, they don't live up to. And the only time that agreements have power and force is when there's a great power and a great force that's standing behind them. There's no great power and no great force standing behind these legal documents that Stephen Kotkin is invoking as though they're holy Torah. He is talking about these documents as though they are the New Testament and he is a fundamentalist Christian. He is talking about these documents as though they are the Quran that was handed down by God. He's talking about these documents as though they're the Book of Mormon who were delivered, which was delivered by some angel to Joseph Smith. I mean, the startling, staggering, willful, blinded, naivete of this guy who believes that these documents possess power in and of themselves is breathtaking. What a fool. Can you believe how foolish he is? Now, he has a lot of wisdom, but also so much foolishness. Countries are sovereign and can freely choose their foreign policy and what alliances they Oh, did you know that countries are sovereign and can freely choose their foreign policy and foreign alliances? What world does he live in? When has this ever been true for small, vulnerable countries living next to great powers? This has never, ever been true in human history. You live next to a great power. You are not sovereign, and you don't get to choose your alliances. Has he ever read the history of the Peloponnesian Wars? Right? The history of the Peloponnesian Wars started off by one small country making a move here, and uh, the, the rising power of Athens was, was making the dominant power at the time, Sparta, feel nervous. And so the rising power of Athens made Sparta highly reactive. And all those other countries that, that got involved, all those other city-states, right, they didn't have sovereignty. They didn't get to choose their own alliances. You either ally with us or we slaughter you and rape your women. Right? That's the nature of reality. Do you think Mexico is sovereign and can choose its own foreign policy? Do you think Mexico could host a Chinese military base? Do you think Mexico could host a Chinese naval port? Do you think Canada could host a Chinese naval port? Do you think the United States would be just fine, right, with Canada allowing China to set up military bases? Of course not. It has never operated this way in all of human history. This guy is on pleasant absurdia. There has never been a time when nations are sovereign in and of the fact that they are nations. There has never been a time when the weak haven't had to endure what they must and when the strong haven't taken what they wanted. And there never will be. They want to join. Let's even go farther than that. I mean, you don't have to go farther than that, but let's go farther than that, Lex. Is an autocratic repressive regime that invades its neighbors in the name of its own security something new in Russian history? Did we not see that? 
Oh, what about the United States? The United States started out as 13 colonies, 13 states. And then what did it do? It kept expanding. It kept invading its neighbors. It kept wiping out its neighbors. It kept flexing and establishing more and more power. And the only reason the United States did take over the Caribbean was because of the divisive issue of slavery. And it just would have created too much, you know, internal dislocation. Right? We invaded Canada in, in the early 19th century in the Anglo-American War of 1812. The United States kept expanding and expanding until it was no longer in its interest to do so. Is the United States caring about the sovereignty of the tribes that it was destroying? The United States care about the sovereignty of Mexico when it took territory from Mexico? The United States care about the sovereignty of Spain? The United States took what it wanted, and Hitler admired the brutal nature of American expansion. Hitler modeled himself in large part on American racial policy, on American eugenic policy, and on the brutal nature of American expansionism. Right. Hitler admired the brutal nature of the United States. This before? Is this, does this not predate NATO expansion? Does this? It's the way human history has always worked. The strong take what they want. It has nothing to do with Russia. Right? Sparta acted this way. Athens acted this way. The Babylonians acted this way. The Medes and the Persians acted this way. Egypt acted this way. Rome acted this way. France, Spain, England acted this way. This is how great powers act. The strong take what they want, the weak do what they must. It's not predate the existence of NATO. Would Oliver Stone sit here in this chair and say to you, you know, they had to impose serfdom in the 17th century because NATO expanded. They had no choice. Their hands were tied. They were compelled to treat their own population like slaves because, you know, NATO expanded. I mean, I could go on through the examples of Russian history that predate the existence, let alone the expansion of NATO, where you have behavior, policies, actions, very similar. Yeah, it's just unique to Russia. Nobody ever does this because, as Laponius points out, the United States always respects treaties and agreements. Certainly did with, with the Indians when they, they made these treaties and agreements with Indians, not just to the letter of the law, but also to the spirit of the law. So that's what it means to be American. Learn to what we see now from the Kremlin. And, and you can't explain those by NATO expansion, can you? And so that argument doesn't wash for me because I have a pattern here. What? what? I mean, he's been talking like this for months. This is his response to realism for months now since the Ukrainian invasion. Surely has been brought up to him how absurd he is. He's arguing that the nature of reality is immoral. Yes, the nature of reality is immoral. And so what, right? The laws of gravity operate whether you're a moral person or an immoral person. The laws of power politics and great power politics operate whether you're a moral country or an immoral country. Here that predates NATO expansion. I have international agreements, founding documents signed. Oh my God, he has international agreements and founding documents that are signed. And they have metaphysical certitude. They're metaphysical principles. Uh, he, this guy should meet Ken Brown. I mean, they'd have a great time together talking about metaphysical principles, how outrageous it is that people aren't clear on their metaphysical principles. And you can't go anywhere. You can't make any process, progress in the human condition. You can't help people unless you first agree on certain foundational metaphysical principles. By the Kremlin, 
over many, many decades, acknowledging the freedom of countries to choose their alliances. And then I have this problem where when you rape somebody, it's not because they're wearing a short skirt. It's because you have raped them. Oh, you rape someone because you rape them? That's a tautology. No, people rape because they can. Right? The strong take what they want. People steal because they can. People murder because they can. And they think they'll get away with it. You've committed a criminal act, Lex. That's a, I think there's a lot of people listening to this that will agree to the emotion, the power, and the spirit of this metaphor. And I was struggling to think how to dance within this metaphor because it feels like it wasn't precisely the right one, but I think this, it captures the spirit. Um, I'm not suggesting, Lex, that everything the West has done has been honorable or intelligent. Fortunately, we live in a democracy. We live in liberal regimes. We live under rule of law, liberal in the classical sense of rule of law, not liberal in the leftist sense. We live in places like that and we can criticize ourselves and we can criticize the mistakes that we made or the policy choices or the inactions that were taken. And there are a whole lot of... Yeah, the, the West, we can we can criticize ourselves. Man, really sucks for, for those of you who don't identify with the West because you're just incapable of moral introspection. You're just incapable of being self-critical. You're just incapable of seeing objective truth. You're just incapable of achieving metaphysical principles and clarity about first metaphysical principles. I mean, that, that's why it's so awesome to be in the West because we're just so self-critical. I mean, the levels of just willful delusion here are staggering. Things to answer for. And, and, and you can now discuss the ones that are your favorites, the dishonor or the mistakes, and, yeah. and I could discuss mine, and we could spend the whole rest of our meeting today discussing the West's mistakes and problems. And we won't end up in prison for it. Yeah, Alex, and so that's, I'm thankful for that. Yes. And I'm thankful that people may disagree and that people make the argument that NATO expansion is to blame. But, but you see, I'm countering two arguments here. I'm countering one argument, which is very deeply popular, pervasive. You're not countering any argument. You're living in a world of delusion. Right, you completely detach from reality. I mean, how on earth, how on earth do you get this detached from reality? How on earth do you think that you're countering an argument when you're not addressing it at all? There's a saying, there's no fool like an old fool. I mean, this man has a very solid uh, body of achievement, but somehow he's become completely detached from reality. About how Russia has this cultural tendency to aggression. And it can't help but invade its neighbors, and it does it again and again. And it's eternal Russian imperialism, and you have to watch out for it. Okay, that's silly. Now, he's got a lot of, uh, a lot of, a lot of insightful things to say a little later in the show. So let's play I'm sitting here in front of you. Thank you. It's an honor. And, and it's a mutual honor. <laughs> so um, Ukraine, before the war, is run by a TV production company. Right, you're one guy running this fantastic, incredible podcast. Yeah. There's 20 guys or so running a country the size of Ukraine. Yeah. And, and one's a producer and one's like a makeup person and one's a, a video editor. And, and they're fantastically talented people if your country is a TV production. Mm. So before the war, Zelensky had, what, 25% approval rating? And he couldn't get much done and it wasn't working. He yeah. got elected with 73%, as you know, and then he was down to 20. That's a pretty big drop. And so you're thinking, maybe having a major, large size, 40 million plus population European country run by a TV production company is not the best choice. And then what do we see? We see President Zelensky decides to risk his life on behalf of his country, Ukraine. He decides to stay in the capital. He's not going to flee. He, they're going to stay and fight. And he could be killed. He can die. It's a decision where he put his life on the line. Obviously, 
Jewish descent, Russian-speaking childhood and upbringing, Russian-speaking Jewish descent puts his life on the line for the country of Ukraine. It's a pretty big message, don't you think? And it's crucial. And it turns out, not only that, Lex, but they're good at TV. They're good at information war. And in a war, yeah. it's a TV production company and a TV personality. Those, that's exactly what you want running a country because they're crushing in the information war. And he's spectacular. European Parliament, U.S. Congress, Israeli Parliament. There's no room on Zoom, let alone in person, that he can't win over. He's just so effective. You know, this is the first time reality TV has been about reality instead of fake. Reality TV is just this completely fake. There's a great cartoon showing two Russian tanks in Warsaw and, and one Russian tank commander says to the other while they're smoking a cigarette, well, we lost the information war. Yeah, they lost the information war, but they, they won the, the real war, which they may very well do. Fake nonsense. But Zelensky, this is real reality TV. And, and, and he means it. And, and the nation is behind him. And, and they're just as courageous and just as ingenious in many ways. And it's spectacular. And so, yeah, who saw that coming? I didn't see that coming, Lex. In fact, the Biden, we talk about Putin's miscalculation. Mm -hmm. The Biden administration, as you alluded to, offered him an exit from the country. They didn't say, you know, you want to stand and fight? We'll back you. They said, we'll get you out. You want to come now? And famously, you know that quote, right? What he said about how he doesn't need a ride. Remember that yeah. moment? The Biden administration <laughs> was poised to do another Afghanistan moment. That ignominious exit from Afghanistan yeah. was almost what happened in Ukraine when the Biden administration offered him that ride out of there. And fortunately, he declined and helped rally. And the people from below also rallied to stop the invader uh, without the presidency and without the government in Ukraine, saving the Biden administration and, and the European leaders who latched on. Fortunately, they had the presence of mind to latch on to this gift, this, this bravery and ingeniousness of, of Zelensky and the rest of the Ukrainians, and flipped and decided to support Ukraine's resistance, you know, first with 5,000 helmets only, as the Germans initially promised, and now with really heavy weapons. And so that's something that wasn't foreseen. I certainly didn't foresee that. I foresaw the Ukrainian society being courageous and resisting, but I didn't foresee a television production company being exactly what you want to run a country in a war, a, a president's Zelensky willing to sacrifice, lay down his life and rallying others in the country to do that. And then the country being so effective, not just at a courage, but at battlefield resistance to the Russian invasion. So I stand corrected by the Ukrainians and I'm ecstatic that I didn't, that I was wrong, that I was proven wrong. And like I said, there's clear factions of the West and the East of Ukraine. And here's a person that, like you said, was in the high 20s, low 30s percentage approval in the country before the war. And now was able to use He's in the 90s. In the 90s. He's in the 90% approval rating. I mean, I, I think they stopped doing the uh, the polling. Once he hit 91% or whatever it was in the previous poll, I think they all understood that, that for now they didn't need any more polling, that it's pretty clear the nation. So 25% to 90-something percent. And, and, and just like the 25% was deserved, the 90-something percent is also deserved, fully deserved. And the question is how that all stabilizes. It feels like this set of events, I may be paying attention to Twitter too much, which is a concern uh, of mine, whether uh, the change I see is just surface level or deep level. But it seems like we're in a new world. That something dramatic has shifted. That um, this power that's rooted, I mean, in your study it, uh, of the 20th century, it's so deeply rooted in history. There's this power center of the world is now going to, it has been shaken by this event. And how that changes the world is, is unclear. Uh, it's unclear what lesson China learns from watching this, what lesson India learns from watching this. Both nations, as far as you can get polls about Chinese population, but both nations are largely in support of Putin. So Russia, India, and China are still supporting of Putin quietly. I would maybe uh, um, elaborate a little bit on that point, Lex. I think you're right 
the, the feeling that we're in an inflection moment, you know, an inflection point. I think that's widespread. And I think it's widespread for good reason. We might be. But I also share uh, your, um, let's say, modesty about where it's going and how hard it is to predict where this might go. It's only an inflection point if the trends continue, right? If the trends endure. There are plenty of non-inflection points. After 9-11, the whole world rallied around the United States after it was attacked, after the, the bombing of the towers here in New York City and the hitting of the Pentagon. And, and that didn't last. And it was not really an inflection point, was it? It felt like it might be, but it wasn't. And so this is not a comparable moment in, in terms of what happened. So I agree with everything he's saying here in the last uh, five minutes. Uh, but it has the feeling that it might be a watershed. And maybe we'll squander it the way we squandered the post 9-11 uh, rallying around the United States. Uh, maybe we'll actually consolidate it and it'll endure, or maybe it'll endure despite ourselves. And we can't tell and we can't know yet. And it depends in part on what we do and what we don't do. But here's a few things that we understand already. The idea that the West was in decline and that the rest of the world had risen and was more powerful and that we lived in a multipolar world, that turns out to be empirically false. It's not true. And I think this is a very important point. I mean, it's just factually not true. There are no major important multinational institutions, organizations that are run on behalf of or led by a South African, a Nigerian, a person from India. Even the Chinese don't run these institutions. They would like to, and they're trying, but they don't. And so whatever you pick, the IMF, the World Bank, the Federal Reserve, which is the most powerful multinational institution, which is actually only a domestic institution and doesn't have a legal mandate to act multilaterally, but does. It's got the most power of any institution in the world. NATO, the bilateral alliances that the U.S. has up and down Asia. What organizations that have tremendous leverage on the international system, on the international order, are non-Western? The U.N. is the most encompassing. And of course, we know that the five, it has five members of the Security Council with a veto, one of which is Russia, one of which is China, and the others are the U.S., Britain, and France, not India, not South Africa, not Indonesia, not all of these other countries where the people live, right? The bulk of the population of the world and, and where the population is growing, like on the African continent. So it's not a multipolar world. We talked already about the international financial system. It's Western, not multipolar. We talked about the U.S. military and NATO, or we could talk about the Japanese military, which is just very formidable, enormous number of platforms. Even the And uh, Chad complains I didn't play any of the recent John Mearsheim and Stephen Walt debate. I watched it all thoroughly. Nothing was said that I haven't heard and uh, shared on this show many times. Australian military we could talk about, Lex, right? And so it's a Western-dominated world. Right. Australia has the capability of cutting off China's capacity to get energy, right? Two or three Australian destroyers in the Indian Ocean could end China's importation of foreign oil. And without that, within within a year, 500 million Chinese would starve to death. And the West, remember, is not a geographic concept. It is an institutional and values club. The Japanese are not European, but they're Western. Just like... That's an interesting perspective. It's not an idiotic perspective. Russia is European, but not Western. Because European is a culture. That, that's really interesting. Japan is not European, but it is Western in outlook. Russia is European in large part genetically, but not Western. Category. And Western is an institutional category where you have rule of law and separation of powers and free and open public sphere and dynamic open market economy. And, okay. and then we have another thing which is pretty clear. The West is powerfully resented 
powerfully envied and admired simultaneously. P.J. O'Rourke, the comedian who died this year, fantastic. It was a big loss for the culture. He said there are two things that are always characteristic of any American embassy abroad. One is a political protest outside, and the other is the longest line you've ever seen for visas. And those things are true simultaneously. And that's the world we live in, meaning that non-Western countries envy and admire the West, but they also resent the power of the West. Western hypocrisy, right? The West invades countries. If people hate you and resent you, it's because you have more power and accomplishment than they do, right? We never hate, resent, uh, uh, filled with wrath towards those who are below us. We only feel these things towards people who are on our level or above us usually. So if people resent you, because you, you've got some things that uh, they wish that they had. When it wants, but when others do that, it's illegal, right? The West uh, arrests you for money laundering, but it's Western money laundering that is where you go when you need to launder money, right? So they see the hypocrisy, they see the excessive power that the West has, and they resent it. And they say, you, who elected you? And uh, Laponia says when Westerners go to Japan, they get a serious culture shock. It's not Western at all. Yes, but Japan, since World War II, has thrown itself completely under the American umbrella. Right? Japan is not active contrary to what United States wants from them in, in anything important for, for 70 years. Right? China, uh, Japan slavishly follows America's lead just as Australia does, just as Britain does. Right? Britain, Australia, Japan all depend for survival on the might of the United States of America, and therefore none of these nations would ever buck the American lead in, in anything important. They cannot because their very survival depends upon American military protection. To run the world. We have a billion plus people, or we have a 200 plus million people, and we don't have a say. You're the self-appointed guardians of our world. Who did that? And so it's incumbent on the West not only to remember the power that it has, but also to exercise that power legally and with restraint, and also to think about how it can expand institutions to be more encompassing so that other parts of the world... These things are very nice, but in the final analysis, the primary job of every nation state is to survive. And the primary way you survive is by becoming as strong as possible vis-a-vis -vis your neighbors. So having, having a mission of you know, transcendent moral values and trying to establish the international rule of law may, may very well detract from the survival of your own nation state and would, would be suicidal for you to pursue that policy if that's true. Are not on the outside being dictated to, but instead are on the inside. Too often, right? West and uh, Josh Randall says Japan went from psychopathic enemy to solid road dog and who said about Germany, they're either at your neck or at your feet. Western power is not consultative in a decision-making. I mean, think about how I was arguing for years on this show that uh, China was no real threat, that uh, in all likelihood, China was going down the toilet. The United States was far more powerful than China. The, the United States had no real peer competitor. And and people are telling me, oh, the Chinese military, it's so tough. The Russian military, it's so tough. Luke, look at their ads. Luke, look at their ads. Their ads are so much more masculine and so much more tough than American military ads. Well, 
you can have really gay military ads like the United States has and still have a very powerful military. You can have very tough, masculine-looking ads like China and Russia have and be a piss-poor military, right? The United States is so much powerful than people realized three months ago. It has no peer competitor. China is so much more vulnerable than, than people were thinking two years ago, three years ago. Remember all the people who come into my chat and just rubbish me that China's got to take over the world. United States is nothing. The United States is trash. China's just going to eat our lunch. Never hear that anymore. And the extent of China's difficulties is not even realized yet dominantly in the media. Like China is in such worse shape than the news media portrays. And yet the media is portraying enough reality about China that you never, ever, ever hear anyone talking anymore about how China is going to run the world, how China is going to eat America's lunch. Never hear anyone talking about that anymore. In fashion. It's consultative after the fact. Okay, you know, we got together in the EU or we got together in NATO or we got together at the Federal Reserve and here's our decision mm -hmm. and we're announcing it today. And so your economy gets destroyed because the Federal Reserve decides it has to raise interest rates or you now uh, go into default. You can't pay your debt because Western banks lent you money and now the West has changed interest rates or, or other considerations and you're in big trouble now. And so this is something which we fail to address. It's very hard to address. It's very hard to reform international institutions. It's very hard to share power. It's very hard to acknowledge that you have too much power and that maybe having too much power is not good, not only for the rest of the world, but for yourself. And so it's great to rediscover the West and rediscover its values and rediscover its authority and credibility and power. But it's, that's not sufficient. So we know this now. We know that the rest of the world is not necessarily jumping on the Western bandwagon. Can we go to the mind of Vladimir Putin? Because what you just said, China, India, they seem to sit back and say, we're not going to condemn the actions of Vladimir Putin and Russia, but we would really like for this war to be over. Yeah, it was Winston Churchill who said, Germany's either at your neck or at your feet. So there's that kind of energy of, we don't just stop this because you're putting us in a very, very bad position. And yet Vladimir Putin is continuing the aggression. What is he thinking? What information is he getting? Is it the system that you've described of authoritarian regimes that corrupts your flow of information, your ability to make clear-headed decisions, um, just as a human being, when he goes to sleep at night, is he not able to see the world clearly? Or is this all deliberate, systematic action that does have some reason behind it? We got to talk a little bit about China too, but let's answer your Putin question directly. So on Twitter, you've lost the war. Or as they say, you know, there are these two Russian soldiers having a smoke in Warsaw. And, you know, they're, they're taking a break, having a smoke, and they're sitting there in Warsaw on top of their tank. And one says to the other, yeah, you know, we lost the information war. And there they are sitting in Warsaw having that smoke, right? So, yeah, on Twitter, Russia has completely lost the war. In reality, they failed to take Kiev. They failed to capture Kiev. And they failed in phase two, as they called it, or plan B, which is to capture the entirety of the Donbass. We're three months into the war. If you had made a judgment about, let's say, the Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union, a definitive judgment after three months, you might have got the outcome wrong there. If you had judged the Winter War, the 1939-40 Soviet invasion of Finland after three months, you would have got that wrong too of what the outcome was going to be. So we're early in the game here, and we have to be careful about any definitive judgments. But it is the case that so far, they failed to take Kiev, and they failed to capture the entirety of the Donbass, Luhansk and Donetsk provinces, eastern Ukraine, a part of eastern Ukraine. And they've been driven out of Kharkiv and, and the area immediately surrounding Kharkiv. They never captured Kharkiv, but they came close, but now... The Ukrainians drove them back to the Russian border in that very large and important region. So those look like battlefield losses that are 
impossible to explain away if you're the regime in Russia, except by suppression of information. And as you know from Russian history, Lex, uh, um, leaders in Russia have an easier time with a state of siege and deprivation than they do with explaining a lost war. But let's look at some other facts that are important to take into account. One, the Russian army has penetrated farther into Ukrainian territory since February 2022, including in Kherson region, um, uh, the famous Mariupol siege that just ended. They have uh, built a large uh, presence in areas north of Crimea on the Sea of Azov, the Black Sea littoral, ultimately, that they didn't previously hold. They're still fighting in Luhansk for full control over at least half of the Donbass, and Ukrainians are resisting fiercely. But nonetheless, you can't say that they've been driven out. On the contrary, farther penetration than the beginning. Ukraine doesn't have an economy anymore. They have somewhere between 33 and 50% unemployment. It's hard to measure unemployment in a war economy. But their metallurgical industry, that Azovstal steel plant in Mariupol, is a, is a ruin now. And a lot of farmers are not planting the fields because the harvest from the previous year still hasn't been sent, sold abroad because the ports are blockaded or destroyed. And so you don't have an economy and you need $5 billion or $7 billion or $8 billion a month to meet your payroll, to feed your people, to keep your army in the field. That's a lot of money per month. And that's indefinite. That's as long as this blockade lasts. And so you don't have an economy anymore. You're indigent. And even if you take the lower number, $5 billion, as opposed to Zelensky asked for $7 billion, $5 billion is $60 billion a year. That's $60 billion this year. That's $60 billion next year. And so who's got that kind of money? Which Western taxpayers are ready? And if you use the 7 or $8 billion, you get up to $100 billion a year. The Biden uh, the, the, just signed, the Biden, uh, President Joe Biden just signed the bill making it law, $40 billion in aid to Ukraine. It's just an enormous sum. The economic piece of that is a month and a half, two months of Ukrainians uh, covering U Ukrainian expenditures. That's it. And they're asking the G7, they're asking everybody for this. So you have no economy and no prospect of an economy until you evict the Russians from your territory. And then you have a Western unity, Western resolve. It lasts or it doesn't last, Lex. So you're President Putin and you've got more territory than before. And you've got a stranglehold over the Ukrainian economy. And you've got a lot of the world neutral. And you've got the Chinese propaganda supporting you to the hilt with those Oliver Stone and Mearsheimer lines about how this is really NATO's fault. And you've got Hungary dragging its feet on the oil embargo against Russia. And you've got Turkey dragging its feet on the recent applications of Sweden and Finland for NATO expansion. And you're saying to yourself, Lex, maybe I can ride this out. I got a lot of problems of my own. And we can go into the details on the Russian side's the challenges. But he's got, uh, he's, he's on Ukrainian territory unless he's evicted. And he's got a stranglehold on their economy. And he's got the possibility that the West doesn't stay resolved and doesn't continue to pay for Ukraine's economy or supply those heavy weapons. And so you could argue that maybe he's deluded about all of this. And maybe he should go on Twitter. You know, I'm not on Twitter, but maybe Putin, who famously doesn't use the internet, should go on Twitter and see he's losing the war. Or you can argue that maybe he's calculating here that he's got a chance to still prevail. Wow, that is um, darkly insightful. If I could go to Henry Kissinger. In, I wish, like, like <laughs> yours. But so, so there are these things that we can't predict, but there are these things we're watching and watching closely. And on top of that, something that's not in World War II, or for the most part, is cyber attacks and cyber warfare, which is uh, much less, perhaps, um, convertible into human words because it happens so quickly. It's such large scales, so difficult to trace and all those kinds of things. It's not bullets. It's uh, electrical signals. And that, that's... Yeah, but those Ukrainian people, they're like Ulex. They're young and they're technically really proficient. Yeah. And they've been amazing. 
You know, they spent those teenage years in the basement yeah. playing video games. Not turns the, out it's useful after all. <laughs> it turns out it's more than useful. You can save your country that way. And so they're not alone. They're getting support. And that support is important. Yep, save your country playing video games. caused such a violent reaction from the military. Why was that? Was it arbitrary? Was it a result of Spanglerian decline? Was it a result of entropy? Was it, you know, satanic chaos from another dimension? Aliens? Lizard people? What was it? I don't have all of these explanations for you, although they are fun to think about, I guess, on the line of creative thinking. I believe it's economic in its causes. I believe economic incentives led to this political change. And so when you had 30 years of Franco, similar to, you know, Juche in North Korea or something, you had this hardline military coup take over the country and say, stop, no more progress. But there's always going to be a moment of weakness. Those kinds of rigid military structures, unless they're backed up by the types of economy that allowed them to rise in the first place, the agrarian economy. When we look at a geopolitical situation, if the entire world is doing hyper-capitalism, progressive, and you're this little Francoist state or a little North Korean state, and you're isolated, you know, it's just you holding out against the whole world. It seems like it's a matter of time before the leader dies. There's a succession crisis in the case of Franco. He turned it over to the monarchy and the monarchy said, eh, we're not going to fight this fight. We'd rather just go with the flow. So my question is, what is that flow? What is the incentive structure? It fundamentally comes from an economic shift. And if you believe we're going back, you're wrong. What we've done now is we've exported the old economy, the industrial economy, the economy of the factory to China. But the problem with China is that China has a competitive advantage in labor, has over a billion people. And they're all hard workers and they go to the factory and they make widgets for Americans. But what happens when automation comes to China? It's already happening to an extent. All of the trends that I talk about are already present in China. They may be slower than in the West. They may be at a different distance traveled than the West, thinking about a car driving along a road. You know, America's here, China's over here. China might be going slower. It might be far behind, but it's still headed in the same direction. Okay, not getting anything from that. So... It's not uncommon you tune into a Kenneth Brown video and uh, 20 minutes later you're realizing there's absolutely nothing here. There's no wisdom here. So sometimes he brings it. Sometimes he does extraordinarily well for someone his age. Sometimes it's pretty funny, but uh, sometimes there's nothing there. So I was watching a terrific, uh, not watching, listening to a terrific podcast, Trickster, The Many Lives of Carlos Castaneda. So, want to play a little bit from the trickster, the many lives of Carlos Castaneda. Three part he was now learning series. English at the Cine Teatro Cajamarca movie theater. A young Cesar Arana was learning it at home, listening to records on the Victrola, an indulgence of his jeweler father. In the early 90s, when Castaneda reemerged onto the public stage, his enduring fame and infamy had turned him into a cultural icon, a cultural icon who was back in business. He and his inner circle of followers began ramping up their appearances, and the audience size of their workshops and seminars would sometimes swell to over 800 attendees. The workshops taught the set of bodily techniques Castaneda had been honing since the 80s, what he was now calling tensegrity, a term that he had liberated from Buckminster Fuller. Riding on the popularity of in-home fitness, VHS tapes of Tensegrity soon found their way to the market. In the videos, Kylie Lundahl, a blonde, strikingly tall woman, who was one of Castaneda's fiercest followers, Welcome. acted as the lead presenter. The movements that you are about to see have been taken directly from other movements, which shamans, seers who lived in Mexico in ancient times, used to call magical passes. Everything we know about those movements was taught to Carlos Castaneda, Taisha Abelar, Florinda Donner-Grau, and Carol Teagues. 
by Don Juan Mathus, a Yaqui Indian shaman from the state of Sonora, Mexico. But just as Castaneda began upping his public profile, health problems began popping up. Eye troubles. Okay, sorry, that was the wrong segment. Think of a new film company. Uh, I'm so it's sorry. being launched by Oliver Stone and its producing partner, Janet Yang. And the name that they had chosen for the company was a rather peculiar one, unless you were a fan of Castaneda's books. Oliver Stone. I named the corporation that I formed Ixlan in respect for Castaneda's work. Ixlan was the name of a mythic destination Castaneda had made famous with his third book, Journey to Ixlan. Soon after the ad appeared in Variety, the office at Ixlan received an unexpected phone call. I got a call from someone named Tracy Kramer. She said, hi, I represent Pops Castaneda. And I immediately held my breath. This is Janet Yang, producer of The Joy Luck Club and The People vs. Larry Flynn. I was worried if Carlos was going to have an objection to the name Ixlan. But Tracy was very friendly. said, no, Carlos would really like to meet you and Oliver. And I said, okay, is there anything in particular? He said, no, just a meeting of the minds. So I went back to Oliver, and he too had a similar reaction. said, oh, is everything okay? What do you think he wants to meet? I said, I really don't know, but I don't think it can hurt to meet. Aren't you curious? He said, yeah, I'm curious. At the time of Janet's call with Tracy, Castaneda was in the process of developing a new secretive project, one whose ambition would transcend the confines of a book's cover. As Castaneda began beta testing his project in the 80s, even by his own extreme standards, he was becoming incredibly elusive. He started withdrawing more and more from the social world of his family and old friends and became more ensconced in the world of his followers. Now, you notice this with many e-personalities. They withdraw more and more from their old friends and from their family and retreat instead much more into the world of their followers. So this seems to be the trajectory of a Nick Fuentes and uh, even a Richard Spencer for a while. I wrote to him all the time. I would ask him why he didn't return my phone calls, why he wouldn't return my letters. Castaneda's son, C.J. Castaneda. I actually hired an attorney because I thought that they had done away with it. I thought that the girls or any of those people, those whack jobs, just following him around like little puppy dogs, and I thought that they might have done something with him. Carlos's descent into running this whole cult with his followers, Florinda and the rest, in some way took over his life. Castaneda's editor at Simon Schuster, Michael Corda. He became consumed not only by his own legend, but also by the world he created around it. It's one thing to believe in witchcraft. It's another thing to actually sort of create roving coven of witches and live in the center of them. Ever since the days when he sat at Professor Harold Garfinkel's feet, Castaneda had understood the idea that groups create worlds. Over time, he would realize that the right members could create the right world for him, one that was perfectly tailored to meet his own emotional and psychological needs. Friend, Larry Watson. Carlos needed the right people, the right setting, the right combination of elements. And if those... So the, he, Carlos Castaneda would have loved the potential of the e-personality where you can create a world just composed of your own followers who, who cater to your every whim. And you see this with many celebrities. They kind of get tired of the sturm and drang of everyday life. They just want to retreat to a world of their own followers. And uh, Carlos Castaneda had just the, the best of intentions for Oliver Stone's producing partner, Janet Yang, who was dating Billy Bob Thornton at the time as she steadily fell under the influence of Carlos Castaneda. Carlos, he told me that he didn't like the fact that I was, and this is somewhat personal, he said he didn't like the fact that I was sleeping with Billy Bob Thornton. He didn't like the fact of anybody's seed being in me, as he said. Throughout her time with Castaneda, Janet kept a private journal 
Here, I just underlined some things. I wrote here, I told Carlos guiltily that I had been with Billy. And so then Carlos said, you shouldn't be seeing him. He's going to damage your energy. And there was definitely mutual suspicion between the two of them. I found myself in a tug of war because they represented two completely different aspects of existence. You know, there was such a dichotomy because Billy was not a complicated intellectual person. He was a very deep person, but his life experience was born out of his sensory experiences. And Carlos was just the opposite. He was, his head was in the clouds and he had very grandiose ideas, very abstract. Undeterred by Billy Bob, Castaneda pursued Janet obsessively. I don't mind talking about this now because what do we all have to hide anymore? So one evening, he invited me over to his home right in West L.A. He had this place that was kind of hidden behind a lot of bushes and trees. So he led me into a bedroom, and I wasn't really sure what was going to happen, but I had a feeling. But then I thought, oh, well, what am I going to do? And so he proceeded to tell me that that his semen was going to just disappear, that, that it would get absorbed by my body. And I've shared this with very few people, just because most of the time when I raise his name, people are like, why don't you make Carlos Castaneda? That's amazing. Okay, yeah, tip, guys. If some guy wants to fill you with his semen and he tells you it's just going to disappear and it's not a sexual thing, probably employ some skepticism. It didn't feel right to send this again. Then he basically... I can't say it was rape, so that would it, it wasn't rape. You know, I, it would be unfair for me to call it rape. I I could have run out of there. I, uh, you know, there are many. I could have not gone to begin with. Uh, there's so many things, you know. So it, it wasn't rape because I didn't resist. He didn't. It was it was a it was a unpleasant seduction or something. But it's relatable to a lot of the stories that have come out, and I really do understand now how common this is in many different ways, especially for young women. You meet someone that seems to be very powerful, that seems to be very concerned about you and your growth, that seems to be very invested in that growth, and that wants, seemingly wants to teach you, and there's a level of flattery. You get plucked out of the crowd, and this idea that someone sees you and thinks you're very special, and if you don't know yourself, then you want to hang on to that feeling of specialness that somehow somebody's endowing on you. So that's uh, Janet Yang, the producing partner for Oliver Stone. So you're saying, Forty, cut the crap. Give me some Donna Bevan Lee. I mean, this is a woman who has great wisdom. So let's get some Donna, Donna Bevan Lee. You think about these things. You also might think, do I want myself in a relationship? Because if you're looking for someone like you, back to square one. That's what one, two, and three-year-olds do. They're like, they are uncomfortable and don't like anything that doesn't remind them of themselves. Because, of course, they're the center of the universe. And everything revolves around them. So if you want yourself, you got to go back farther in your codependency recovery so that you can get yourself grown up enough so that when you go out there, you can be with people, you can see them for who they are and accept them for who they are. Now, one of the things about love addicts, and that's why I'm not spending a whole lot of time on this, this part, but love addicts have a tendency to accept everyone the way they are for every reason into their lives. And what love addicts need to do is accept yourselves into your own life. On a regular basis, you say, who am I? What am I doing? What do I think? How do I feel? 
Am I glad about that? Do I appreciate that about myself? Okay, a little bit there from Donna Bevan Lee. So I've been watching the new TV series Under the Banner of Heaven, and it reminds me of things that go on with all sorts of different religions. It's not just uh, the dark side of Mormonism, but uh, this is what happens with religion. Martin Ballard, president of Robin's Steak. He phoned me every while ago. President Ballard, it's a pleasure to meet you. How, um, how can I help? Well, Robin told me he's badly in need of spiritual counsel and under the circumstances he must be carrying a heavy burden indeed if, if you're here to visit him i i ask if it can wait for tomorrow we're, we, the case is very active right now i know heavenly father won't let you rest until the evil doers are in hand but robin's a good boy as are alan and sam and seeing all three in need of healing prayer I'd like you to release them into my custody. Perhaps we can talk in private. No, there's no need to trouble yourself. I don't feel it's it's prudent to release them just yet. Is everything all right? It's a very ghastly, complicated case, and we're all doing our best here. No, no, I mean, with you, you're carrying so much here and at home. Your mother, her suffering. Your bishop. So what you tell a priest and generally what you tell a Christian clergy is confidential, but what you tell a rabbi is not inherently confidential. Rabbis get to use what they hear for the benefit of the community, which might mean breaking your confidentiality. And so you see in corporate environments like Orthodox Judaism or intense versions of the Mormon religion, the religious leaders will not hesitate to use your you know, every painful personal vicissitude against you if that helps them get what they want or what they believe is best for the community. He told me after he met with you and your wife about your daughter's baptism, you introduced some provocative questions. Blood. Come on, I, I hope you guys can just put your questions on the shelf. I mean, stop asking questions, guys. Atonement? Blood atonement? Come this on. This case must weigh heavy on you. Perhaps some questions man isn't meant to answer. Yeah, guys. Some questions man isn't meant to answer. Trust the priesthood. Trust the priesthood, guys. Trust Release the elites. Release the brothers into Release my the brothers into my custody. Put questions on the shelf. Put your questions on the shelf, guys. Trust the elites. Respectfully, sir. I'm Constitution. I mean, it's the only way out of this mess and back to God's plan. God's plan. What's your plan? Just to get a stone in jail? Is that your plan, or are you well, going to become sheriff and stack the juries and rule how you wish? Because if you do, that's an embarrassment. Ron, you, how do you think we feel? I, I'm embarrassed I can barely support my family. I wish that we could all be as successful, as, as well off as you are. Well, what do you put first, guys? God's plan or man's plan? God's law or American law? You're that's, telling me, right? I'm so, right, sorry. <laughs> I'm curious. Does it? help your prophets to obey these illegal laws? What? Yes or no? <laughs> but you follow them anyhow. And why? Because you're scared. Well, Dad will be gone soon. And what has he left us with? Lafferty men used to run things in the state. And I've had a vision to set things back in that order. Now, if you don't want to be a part of that, and you should change your name if all we do is embarrass you.
Guys, I've had a vision. The vouch nationalism is the way forward for Western civilization. I hope you're not questioning my vision. You are either a part of this family or you are not. You're either a part of this family, guys, or you're not. I've got a vision. I've had a vision, guys. Are you questioning my vision? Vouch nationalism. I think it might be time for you to leave, Ron. Okay. Yeah, it might be time for you to leave. Shut up and let me think, you know. Okay. I do own my own home, and I do own my own business. You all know that, so... Someone tell you that I'm, I'm going to lose it all? Is that why you're speaking? When you're in a corporate environment, all right, meaning that uh, there aren't just these separate spheres of your life, but the community has powers over all of your life, including your business life, then, yeah, you can really get squeezed. So I love living in community. I also love my freedom to speak as I want. So I sacrifice some community for some freedom, and I sacrifice some freedom for some community. I, I don't sacrifice all of one for the other. I to thread a middle path. You, you want to cut me down in front of my own brothers? Is that what you want? Ron. I did not know that. No, just think. No, no, no. Don't touch I me, Daniel. I, I, I didn't know that. Ron, you suffer because you're persecuted. And persecution has rolled on our heads from time to time like peels. So... It's a very winning message when you're in a strongly identifying in-group to blame all your troubles on an out-group. This applies for Mormons, for Jews, for Muslims, for Christians, for blacks, for homosexuals. This is the nature of in-group identity. It's a thunder because of our religion. It's the outsiders. Because of our religion, Ron. So arise and awaken. Come on, guys, arise and awaken. All our problems are because of outgroups. Come on, guys, arise and awaken. Do you want to be part of this family or not? Until your awful situation. I've had a vision. Are you willing to follow my vision for vouch nationalism? They changed the rules on us. We're going to put things back in order. Robin, will you come help me hold our brothers? We should pray. Was this before or after your dad confronted Dan in the parade? It was before. He only stepped in because Ron hadn't succeeded with Dan in the way that our father had hoped. See, Alan claims that, that Ron had nothing to do with Dan. Right. Problems are because of outgroups, guys. Right? All our problems are because of outsiders. Very appealing message if you strongly identify with your in-group. That's it. Bye-bye.